What's hot in the strip clubs? Your hosts, the 2016 and 2017 recipients of the Exotic Dancer Publications DJ of the Year Award, Danny Myers and Alon Fong. Welcome to Behind the Curtain, a What's Hot in the Strip Clubs podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network, found on all major, major streaming platforms, or you can go to our website, www.whatshotitsc.com. I'm your host, Elon Fong, and you know, normally Behind the Curtains is uh, about the strip club industry and people associated with the strip club industry and the talents and the the interesting stories of their lives. Today is a very, very special episode. Here's why. Okay. For those of you who listen to the show, you know I am a Van Halen fanatic. Van Halen's what got me started on my musical journey. At eight years old, my older sister had a, a record player in her room, and I remember her listening to Van Halen 1. I didn't know that's what it was called at the time. I just heard the uh, intro to Running with the Devil, and my eight-year-old ears went, what is that? in a room and I would go put this record on and I, I saw the images of Eddie and Dave doing splits and like all this craziness going on and then you listen to the sound and then Eruption came on and my mind was blown. It was over for me. Music suddenly meant something to me, right? So today's episode is very special to me personally and I have a feeling a lot of you because there's a million and a half Van Halen fans out there, way more than that. I'm going to talk to Stephen Rosen, the author of Tone Chaser. What is Tone Chaser, you ask? Let me tell you. This book is incredible. A little bit about Stephen. Stephen is a former rock journalist, author. He's written for Guitar World, Guitar Player. He's written books about, oh my goodness, Prince, Jeff Beck, Bruce Springsteen, Black Sabbath. He's interviewed and done stories on Led Zeppelin, ZZ Top, The Who, Deep Purple, Lenny Kravitz, Alice Cooper, and of course... The Mighty Van Halen. More specifically, he has befriended over a 25 to 30 year period and interviewed Eddie Van Halen and gotten to know him on a level that very few people got to do. And the book Tone Chaser is about Eddie's life and how he created his sound. I think the quote I read in Brad Tolinsky's book, Eruption, was that Eddie said, yeah, I'm a tone chaser. And, and I think he said it to you. That's how he takes what he hears in his head delivered by the universe, and tries to put it on tape and deliver it to the world, right? So this is where we're starting with. Stephen Rosen, welcome to the show. You are a very accomplished author and a reporter and journalist, and obviously are great at developing relationships with people to the point where they open up to you and making them feel comfortable. So a couple questions for you. Let's talk about you. Were you a yep. musician? Are you a musician as well? I am a musician. Actually, Elon, that was like everybody else. I, you know, I wanted to be a guitar player in a rock and roll band playing when I was much younger and actually grew up listening actually like the ventures and hearing okay. you know the reverb and strats and thinking this is amazing you know and you know had bands through high school you know continued on got got a little bit more into my songwriting I was a good guitar player back in the day I wasn't great I mean I wasn't like any of these guys I would ultimately interview but I, I was good you know and I thought I was a pretty good songwriter and you know doors would open a little bit and you know, you couldn't quite walk through the door, you know. And so when I actually started, you know, writing, you know, doing the music journalism thing, I mean, one, I, I love to write. I, I mean, I love music. You know, I was listening to a lot of music. I was playing guitar. 
I wanted to write for magazines, but but I also thought maybe in the back of my mind as, as a way to walk through that door. And now I'm sitting in a room with the publicist for Aerosmith and Peter Frampton, or I'm sitting there with the management for Guess Who or Heart, you know, so I'm thinking, my God, I'm this close. Well, guys, listen, I, <laughs> I also play guitar and I'm a songwriter, you know, and man, it's that thing that those who can't teach, Got it. which is an unfair kind of a <laughs> maxim, you know, but I guess they looked at me like, well, you're such a great guitar player. Why are you here interviewing our band? <laughs> to make a long story short, yes, man, I, I, I play guitar. I was good. I, I wasn't great, but I understood what was behind the guitar playing and I could understand songwriting and orchestration. So I was able to talk to guitar players on that level. I'm not a technical guy at all, man. You okay. know, somebody says, well, what kind of pickups did they have in his, the first Bumblebee? It's like, I don't know, Seymour Duncan, you know, that stuff. I leave that to books like we're talking earlier about the Brad Talinsky's book. You know, those guys know that stuff backwards and forwards. That's not my thing. I knew enough. I knew more than enough to sort of talk to these guitar players one-on-one. -on -one, and I think they felt comfortable with me. Um, and you, you sort of, you know, touched on it earlier about opening up to me. I, I think I had that ability. You know, I was, I was like the rock and roll psychologist, you know? Yeah. Guys would open up to me. Yeah, I don't know what that is, but I've always kind of been that person. People say, hey, man, well, can I do this? Or I've got these problems, you know? So anyway, yeah, yeah. I always played guitar, wanted to be a guitar player, could never figure out how to, one, find a band or two, keep a band together, three, get gigs, four, earn any money. You know, but beyond <laughs> that, you know, I, I, I was good. I was yeah. Yeah, no. No, I totally understand. Well, you know, that empathy is a huge talent and it's so important to be able to connect with people. I think you and I have learned over the years of interacting with these super talented artists that most of them are introverts or have a lot of trauma in their lives. And so, you know, their music is their way of connecting with the world and even their friends and even on an intimate level, like in the, the closer relationships around them, they struggle with that. Right. And so I think it's the skill you brought to your interviews obviously is a talent unto itself and it, it's important on a human level. You know what I mean? So Tone Chaser, I heard about the book last year and I was actually telling you about this in the pre-interview. I was a little wary about buying it initially because I figured it would be by the name, a, a, a gearhead type of book. It's not that. So I, I I ordered the book last night once I realized that and I did some research. So I'm super excited to get the book and, and, and read it. But what I want to talk to you about, let, let's start at the beginning. Were you aware of Van Halen before you interviewed him, or how did you meet Eddie, and how did that sort of come about? Well, that's a great question, man. And, and think about that moment and how all those how all those little pieces came together. Uh, this is 1977, June 77. Ooh. I'd been writing for about four years. Uh, the first Van Halen record was still uh, five, six months away, uh, right. February uh, 78, the first record. The first record had not come out. Van Halen had been playing the whiskey they kind of graduated from like a Gazaris, you know, they were playing like the Starwood. And then the, 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 the strange thing is I had never seen Van Halen play uh, before I met Ed. Okay. And the reason that was so weird, man, was because I was literally at the whiskey, man, I'll bet you I was there three nights a week. <laughs> um, I mean, all these bands back in 77, a lot of these bands that are now monsters, they were just coming out with like first and second records. If you, if you go back just a little bit earlier, I mean, Aerosmith. My first time I interviewed Aerosmith, all five guys, they played the whiskey, and it was half full. That's you know, crazy. the first record, I mean, the, the first record of the, besides Dream On. Yeah. And there were just so many bands like that. Publicity companies, management wanted these interviews, man, so they were courting writers, that kind of thing. So I had, I, I mean, I had invitations to the whiskey, literally, I could have gone every night. Wow. We're talking about right in the 
height of the punk thing. I was never mm-hmm. a punk guy. I'm, I'm sorry. I just didn't get it, you know? Yep. Cheap Trick was recording a live record at the Whiskey. I thought, wow, Cheap Trick at the Whiskey. Okay. That, that's what they're checking out. This is before Budokan. This is like, a, I forgot the name of the record, live something, you know, the Whiskey. But I thought, hey, Cheap Trick at the Whiskey, that, that's what's going. So I got with my brother and we, we drove over there. I was living in the Hollywood Hills, so the Whiskey is just literally 10 minutes away. Yep. So we show up there. I had befriended the girl who booked the whiskey. Her okay. name was Michelle Meyer. She also booked two clubs called Madame Wong's East and yeah. Madame Wong's West. Yeah. Madame Wong's East was a pretty famous punk club. I mean, all those punk bands were playing there. And what Madame Wong's West is a little more rock oriented. And and we became friends and sort of never having heard my band. I had a band called Deluge at the time. Nice. She booked me into both clubs. And I was, <laughs> I would have done anything for her, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and I mean, I, lo- I loved her. So we're there, Cheap Trick's about to come on, and she taps me and goes, hi, Steve, you know, she goes, listen, there's somebody upstairs, you need to meet him. So, okay. For Michelle want to want to introduce me to somebody, it had to be somebody amazing, because she knew everybody. I mean, I, I call her a Yenta in the book. I mean, she, <laughs> you know, her radar was valuable. So we walk upstairs, up into one of the dressing rooms, and the dressing rooms are like these. Brass pens, to be honest. You know, the carpets are filthy and there's graffiti on the walls, man. But it's a whiskey, you know. I've been there, yeah. I've been there, yeah. So I see this guy standing in the corner, you know, this guy smoking cigarettes. And I'm I'm pretty certain I recognized him. Mm-hmm. Now, you have to understand, 77, there are no stories out on Van Halen, right? There were some posters around. You know, maybe I seen a picture on a poster. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think I recognized him. He walks me over and she goes, Steve Rosen, Eddie Van Halen, you know, and I take his hand. <laughs> no, Eddie Van Halen, Steve Rosen, like he says, you know, Godhead in describing Edward. And when wow. he said Godhead, this is like, you know, you're a creature from another planet. This is the right. highest grade he can just have. And I don't think, well, I know that Ed wasn't expecting company because he was kind of standing in a corner you know, and he was smoking and he was, I think he was probably drinking a beer. So I, I felt a little funny walking over, but I thought, hey, this is Marcel Meyer, C- C- knows. So walk over and, you know, we shake hands. Hey man, how how you doing? I knew about Van Halen's deal on Warner. Okay. So I had heard about that. And and I mean they were big news in Hollywood. I mean, everybody yeah. heard of Van Halen. I had just never heard them play. I right. didn't know who this guy Edward Van Halen was. Right. Really. I didn't know how he played. So we're talking, you know, somehow the conversation comes around to like Eric Clapton. And I don't know if Ed had steered it there or I did. Yeah. But but we start talking about Clapton and I, I can see how much this guy's into Clapton. And I have to tell you, and I write about this in the book, I love Clapton. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I knew everything that he did. I mean, I'm not just the cream stuff, you know, yeah. by then, Derek and the Dominoes, and the Black it, yeah. but I mean, you know, the male stuff and going back to the Roosters, his early blues. Band, I, mean, yeah. I knew what he did, you know. So when I ever talked to somebody, the subject of Eric Clapton came up, I was always waiting for them to make some comment that told me, this guy really doesn't know shit about Eric Clapton. You know, <laughs> I mean, it was like, the fickle guy in me, it's like, you're going to say that you don't know anything, you know? Yeah. Oh, Eric Clapton was in, was in a band before his solo record. It's like, I'm done with you. Anyway, the thing about Ed is he went beyond that, man. Ed started talking about the technique and mm. the sound and, and his game right about. And I thought, holy shit, this guy, he's 10 levels deeper than me. I mean, I, I could appreciate Eric on that level, but you know, as a, a musician, like, so we're talking about, about Eric. We talked about Beck. Blackmore came up 
And it was just one of these really good conversations. If it was a girl, you wish it could have been that good, man. You know, it's like, hey, she's going to want to see me again. <laughs> and so yeah. the conversation is drawn to an end, sort of, and he runs out of the room, kind of comes back in, has like a little piece of paper, he drops it on the, on the carpet, he picks it up, you know, he has a pen. And he, he says, yeah, man, here's my number, man. I, I still live at home with my parents, man. Call me. Oh, that's wild. Wow, my God. I, in four years of, of interviewing guys, no one had ever given me a phone number to call them. And really, it began there. And, awesome. and people said, well, at what point did it become sort of knowing Ed and then talking to him as interviewer and interviewee and becoming friend? And when I really think about it, I really think that the seed for the friendship was kind of planted on that first meeting. So, I was going to say, yeah, that's huge. For, for you to meet him before the come up, before the blow up is so huge. I've known and, and met very many successful people. And they all say, you know, it's hard once you reach a certain level, even if you're like a CEO, because you're the boss and you never know why people are befriending you. Is it because they want to move up? Is it they want your money? Do they want dirt on you? Do they, you just never know what their motives are. And so the fact that you were able to build that, develop that relationship with Edward before all that, he had to have an intrinsic trust with you. And then over the years, obviously you prove it out through your actions. We'll be right back with Steve Rosen, author of Tone Chaser, right after this. This is DJ Mike D with my chum Elon Fong right here on the What's Hot in the Strip Club podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, 
you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Welcome back to Behind the Curtain with Steve Rosen, author of Tone Chaser. We're going to get into a little bit about the impact of the mighty Eddie Van Halen. You know, the, the other interesting thing about Eddie is, and Van Halen, but Eddie, for me, I'm not a guitarist, but he made me love guitar. So I've always now loved and followed other guitarists, but it was, to me, that's what separates him than, from every other guitarist. So like at the time, Randy Rose was the other big name. I didn't even hear of Randy until, I don't know, four years into me being into Van Halen in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my rival buddies or whatever was like a Randy's Rose disciple. And he said, oh, he's way better than Eddie. And I got mad. And so we're debating. We always had this debate back yeah. and forth. And I'd be, and when I think about it now, the difference to me is what what separated Eddie from all the other guitarists is what we've known now as his style and his technique. He lived it. That it literally was him. Everyone else after that learned his techniques and then applied it to songs. He had a a, a melodic sense, a swing, a groove, a style, a feeling in his playing that no one could replicate because it came from his soul or from the universe, as he says. Right. And to me, that's what makes him the greatest guitarist of all time. All these sounds that came out of his head that he had to put down on tape, the 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 pick screams and the wah-wah stuff. And stuff. No one had done that stuff. Look, some of the tapping, Alan Holdsworth, you, know, you can talk about where tapping started, but there's so much more to Eddie's playing than tapping. And as a non-guitarist, I learned all this stuff because all I know is to my ears, it touched me and spoke to my soul. And so to me, that's what makes Eddie Van Halen different than everybody else. He could, his guitar playing could translate to a non-musician. Hmm. That's interesting, you know I mean? man. Yeah, it's a really interesting concept. It, it, that, that's really part and parcel of a question I've always asked myself. What was it about Edward that, it, that attracted, you know, such a following? And, and, and what you say makes a lot of sense. Edward did live and breathe the guitar. You know, I, I write in a book that every time I saw him, he had a guitar in his hands. But it was more than that. Without the guitar, you know, had he not been a guitar player, I, I don't know what he would have done. Emanated from him. And uh, yeah, because I mean, you know, a lot of people who read the book aren't musicians. In fact, I think probably most of the people that I've at least received responses from, they're probably not players. So yeah, so they were touched in, in, in some way. Yeah, he, he had something really rare, really special. And your, your theory about other guitar players kind of learned the techniques and that with Ed, it just came kind of forth naturally. That, that, that's really interesting. Because, I mean, at that time, I mean, there, there were some other really good guitar players. Oh, going, yeah. Randy's you know? amazing, by the way. Let me, let me just say, I don't think Randy sucks or anything. Randy Rose was oh, no, an no, amazing No, 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 I didn't guitarist. get that at all. No, okay. no, I got that absolutely. Uh, I mean, George Lynch and Warren yeah. Martin, oh. Red Beach a little later, you know, mm-hmm. Rusty you know, in McCartney's band, who's a monster guitar player. But I know what you're saying. I, I mean, these are brilliant brilliant musicians but there's some x chromosome that ed had that they didn't have that nobody else had. Nobody had. i mean maybe hendrix had it mm-hmm. um you Page. know i interviewed jeff beck that jeff man. was pretty freaking special i think jeff had had some extra chromosome in him but um <laughs> yeah it's uh it's some amazing thing yeah and you talk about his swing and his rhythm playing uh, alex is a great drummer mike Mike was a, a a good bass player. Yeah, 
he gets um, a bad rap, I feel like, but yeah. And I, and I preface all that in the book. I, I, I love Mike. You know, we, we kind of knew each other. But you have to understand that I came up listening to bass players, and I'm not that I'm trying to compare Mike, but my ears were tuned to bass players like John Atwistle and Jack Bruce and Chris Squire. Um, Fire, yeah. You know, it's just a different school. Right. And, and yeah. you know, what Mike did, it, it worked, his vocals. And we talk about that. The personality, he had to be that person. You know, Mike calls himself Switzerland. He was a neutral. Yeah, yeah. You know, country between the Ed and Dave. But Ed, Ed was was the rhythm, <laughs> was the groove of that band. It, it, it was frightening how, how amazing his, his rhythm depth were. Speaking of the rhythm, is interesting. So Nuno Betancourt just said, talking about his Rise solo, I, you've heard about Rise on the new Extreme album and stuff? Yeah. Okay. And he talks about how actually he was a drummer. And so he plays his guitar solos like they're drum fills. And he said he got that from Eddie a little bit because Eddie started as a drummer first. And Eddie yeah. had talked about how his playing was very rhythmic and he, and he thought in the lines of a drummer. And then you consider the relationship and the interplay with him and Alex yeah. Well, you know, Eddie has said he didn't even listen to the bass. He didn't listen to the vocals, and his monitors was just Alex, so he could he could feed off of that. You you mentioned his rhythm playing, and again, as a relative layman, I'm not a guitarist, but I've learned again. All this is because I loved Eddie, and so I really got into guitarists. I'm a big fan of the guys you mentioned: George Lynch, yeah. Nuno Betancourt's big, Vernon Reed, people like that. I, I love all those yeah. guys. But it became it started with Eddie, and his playing on a rhythmic level, and the swing they had, the groove they had. And, and it's the whole band, too. I, I think all the stupid drama over the years, the magic they caught in a bottle with Dave, the four personalities, they were all very unique and created a bigger whole. And I think that's what people forget now, looking back and looking at all the tabloid stuff and, you know, picking sides, Sammy or Dave or whatever. Yeah. They're two totally different bands, first of all, to me, the Sammy era and the Dave. I don't like to compare them. They're just different bands. They're not the same band. So... When you met him in 77 and then you became friends, but how, how often were you guys interacting? Was it, were you already working and, and writing uh, like long-term? Like, was it that a known thing or did you just kind of pop in or was it just per how you were hired for projects or for articles or do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, that's really, that's a question I had to answer. You know, I tried to lay the book out cr chronologically. Mm -hmm. At first I was going to lay the book out some from, you know, 77 to 83 and then, it, it got really confusing because I had sort of my tapes, which is my main reference point, my interview tapes. And even though a lot of those were incorrectly marked or not marked at all, I basically they were in these binders and what I was, was a basic chronological order. So if I'd had to jump from the first tape, if that was the earliest interview, and then go find a tape from 80, it, it would have been impossible. Chaos. So I tried to lay it, lay it out <laughs> chronologically. And in answer to your question, and I tried to answer this myself in the book, when was I doing the interviews and what was happening between the interviews? And, and a lot of those moments are, are difficult to recall. Certainly I can remember the interviews because those were on tape. Sometimes I had a date. Sometimes I just had a year. So the first interview I did with him was December 77. This is still before the first record. Okay. So I, I met him in June. So a few months later, we do a phone interview. And the strange thing with Ed, and I go back to this all the time, I don't think he remembered meeting me at the whiskey <laughs> and it would happen over and over and not not because of the span of a few months but literally it could be a span of a couple days <laughs> and I, I i learned to think well you know he had so much more up in his brain other than trying to remember you know our last conversation honestly i think so the first record is about um 
February 78. Uh, you have to understand also they're, they're on tour every year, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So he's gone for six months, eight months. So there was also those kinds of lapses. We talk on the phone, you know, and some uh. of those phone interviews. But I would say really probably by the beginning of the, the second record, it became pretty regular. Um, you know, he would show up at the house. He'd moved into Valerie's. You know, Valerie lived mm -hmm. at um, uh, the Coldwater Canyon. She, it was her house. Okay. And then Ed moved in there, you know, from his parents' house, which I always <laughs> found unbelievable. Um, so he, you know, literally, uh, Mulholland is a kind of a big famous street in the Hollywood Hills. And yep. it was literally a Mulholland 10-minute drive away between our houses. So he'd show up or I would never go over to his place without calling. I, you know, sure. I could, that I couldn't do. So I call him and he say, yeah, what are you doing? Come over. Or, so I, I think pretty early on, it became a pretty frequent thing. And honestly, as much as I try to remember, I know that even in the book, I know that there were a lot of times that, that I just, I can't remember. Sure. Um, unfortunately, hanging out with them. Yeah. So that thing turned into, and we talked about it before, the the friend thing and mm -hmm. interview, interviewee thing. I think that, you know, really became a, a friendship pretty early on. That's awesome. So, all right, let me let me get to a quick break here. Hold on one second. Yeah. We'll be right back. Our guest today is Steve Rosen, the author of Tone Chaser, a great book about Edward Van Halen, the king. And we'll be right back with Mr. Rosen right after this. Hey, what's happening? It's DJ Mike D. And you're listening to a What's Hot in the Strip Club podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Let's get it. We are back with Steven Rosen, author of Tone Chaser on Behind the Curtain, a What's Hot in the Strip Club podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find us on all major streaming platforms or check us out at our website, www.whatshotitsc.com. Did you get to interact with his parents at all or meet his parents? I, I met his parents. I think I met his dad a couple times. His dad would come to those. They used to have these big open um, rehearsals. Mm-hmm pre-production rehearsal uh, before going on tour and they rent out, I mean, a monster room at SIR. I mean, you know, like yeah, well, their stages are huge. <laughs> um, and I think I met his dad there twice. I think I met his mom once and it was probably backstage at a gig somewhere. I don't know if I exchanged more than a few words with them. I, I don't want to give everything away in the book for you or anybody else who might yeah. not have gotten this far in it, but let me, let me backtrack just a little bit, Elon. So back in 85, I am supposed to write Edward's authorized biography. Oh, wow. Okay. In contract. I approach Ed. I go, Ed, listen, man, someone's going to approach you to write your biography. Right by 85, he was, you know, he was a month. I said, guys are going to approach you. I would like to write the book. And he said to me, yeah, man, I don't, I can't imagine anybody else writing it but you. Humble to my, to my knees. So we actually signed a couple little contracts. I literally typed up one paragraph. Saying, I, Steve Rosen, have the as Edward's authorization to write his biography, blah, blah, blah. He signed it. I signed it. About a year later, 85, we went to his lawyer, and he drafted a, a somewhat more complex, and this was only, I think, two or three yeah. paragraphs, you know, mm -hmm. contract. Now, these pictures were in the book, which are pretty fun. To look. That's awesome. Yeah, Stephen Rosen has the right. Edward Van Halen has a final say on when the book would come out, just like any artist would. I said, sure. hey, of course. So I began working on the book. Gathering interviews, friends, and guys promoting shows, and former musicians, and everybody, everybody I could find. So, so back in '85, what I also needed to do more than anything was sit down with Ed and get all the interviews for the book. Look, I had done the interviews for the Guitar Mags, and that stuff was covered. But I, I said, Ed, we need to sit down. I, I want to talk. What was it like when you were six years old and growing up? And 
you know, what kind of house did you live in and what kind of car did your parents drive and what was the relationship with your parents and your brother and, you know, all that unbelievable stuff. I said, Ed, I have to talk to your parents. He goes, yeah, okay, okay, you know. And I kept bugging him. I said, Ed, I've got to talk to your mom. He goes, well, okay, he should, but but I want to be there. As if I was, that goes to this thing in him. Like, yeah. like he thought that I wouldn't think his presence would have been important or something. Right. Wow. It goes to humility. You know what I mean? For him wow. to say that, yeah. it was just amazing. I go, and of course I want to be there. My yeah. God. And he goes, I'll set that up. I go, great. And it never gets set up. I, I did the same thing with his dad. His dad passes away. Oh. He goes, hey, man, did you ever talk to my dad? And I got a little angry. Yeah. I go, no, man, I never did because you never set it up. And I pushed. And how hard do you push on somebody? Whether your friend is yeah. like. Yeah, you got to be careful, right? That's. Life. Now, something like that. Now you're irritating the guy and, hey, stay out of my life. Right. So those, those that said, I mean, right, that's gone forever. Yeah. Right? That's I mean, Alex is the only one really who could shed any light on, you know, the relationship between Ed and his mom and his dad. And Ed does talk about his mom and dad in the book. And I don't want to talk about that because it's a pretty amazing moment. You know, I, I asked that because, you know, based on the books I've read and what I've heard. And I, so I'm half Chinese, right? And I'm a first generation American. So I'm an immigrant family. And I know part of the reason I connected to him, he's got the Asian blood in him as well. And I think I connected yeah. to that visually. I'm like, he looks like me, right? And so when you hear about his, his introvertedness and how he was picked on at school and having to learn a different language, I at least grew up in America and was taught English from the jump. My mom is Austrian. My father is Chinese. So the common language in the house was English. And so when you hear later about his substance abuse and his drinking and all that stuff, uh, you talk about his mom, who was sort of a tiger mom, his dad and, and his dad's drinking and cool stuff and all that. It really makes sense. That's why I was going to ask you, did you witness sort of some of the interactions or what that dynamic was like to try and understand Ed, the person a little bit? I wish but, I that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he's such an interesting cat, like not just as a musician, but just as a human being. And what I've, what I've one of my biggest regrets in life is not having ever met him or Dave. Dave, they're both my, my sort of, you know, musical heroes. Right. So let, well, let's get was that Dave's still around you never know yeah maybe maybe one day i've heard i've i've know people who have met him and i've heard it's hit and miss depending on which dave you get right real quick so let let's since you did your book in eras let's talk a little bit about the david lee roth era do you have a favorite record from that era and what is it uh i don't know man the fair warning record is is pretty insane i mean yes. you know uh, i thought dave's thing about as well as he ever did on that record. Yep. Ed, you know, we now hear Ed as a real composer and orchestrating guitar parts and his solos, the sound of his guitar. My God, it's wow. That might be a first choice. That's my that's my favorite record. Well, by the way, and I just want to give Dave credit vocally on "Push Comes to Shove." Like his vocals on that track are amazing. He gets sort of overlooked in two areas. One is vocals. Certainly in studio, were better than what people give him credit for, I feel like. And his lyrics were so unique and interesting. He rarely said something. Sammy's lyrics are very journeyman to me. They were they were to the point. They were very what they were, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, and they were fine, but Dave's were much more creative and interesting, just to me, in my opinion. And so Roth, live, I think he sacrificed a lot of his vocals because he was running around and jumping around and being the showman that he was. Because he could sing a little bit when he really wanted to. No one's going to mistake him for Steve Perry or Freddie Mercury. Don't get me wrong. But right. 
and obviously his screams and his high, the, the two-tone scream he's famous for was yeah. unique and special and whatever. Okay. So I do have a question about the whole Van Halen process as a former singer and lyricist who wrote the uh, vocal melodies and hooks and like who came up with the harmony parts and who wrote those. My understanding was that Eddie would do the music and then just turn it into Dave and Dave would come up with, did he do all the vocals and melodies and choruses and stuff or? I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, I actually approached the subject a little, uh, I reverse things into your, your question. I, I asked Ed, I go, Ed, do you ever come up with melodies mm-hmm. to a piece of music that you give to Dave? I mean, certainly when you're writing, and Ed was a singer, as you all know, you know, he sang mm-hmm. back in the day, actually sang lead on, on some stuff. So, you know, as he's playing, you know, just sort of subconsciously, he's going to hear some yeah. melody running through his head, you know, that maybe turned into a, a little guitar line or something. But he goes, no, man. And like you said, I, he said, I don't even know what Dave's lyrics are. <laughs> so did Dave come up with all the lyrics and, and the vocal melodies? I would say absolutely yes. I mean, maybe wow. Dave, maybe Ed or Mike had, maybe they heard something. I don't even know if Ed was in the studio when Dave cut lyrics. I'm wow. sorry, when Dave cut melodies. Vocals. When yeah, Dave yeah. cut vocals, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. In terms of harmonies, you know, Mike is a really good singer. You know, I, 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 think, I think maybe Mike had some input there. I mean, some of the harmonies are kind of, well, this is the harmony that we, it's not like some intricate harmony that, that you wouldn't hear. But I'd say Dave had obviously a huge hand in that as well. Yeah. So yeah, you, you know, you got to give Dave credit for all that stuff, man. Yeah. And, okay. I always wondered you know, that because if that, that's more musical than most people give Dave credit for, you know, more yeah, musicality. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it is. It is. Definitely. So when, when Eddie is recording now, you know, we've heard the stories of him just recording hours and hours of just bits and things. He, he just got to get it down on tape. He's like Prince that way. Right. You know, they yeah. both had a studio access because it was in their homes 24 yeah. seven Prince's case. He had a whole band he hired. He would just call. They'd have to show up no matter what time and be there for eight, 10, 12, 16 hours and record. Right. Were most of Eddie's stuff that complete as far as music, maybe not, maybe not vocals, but certainly instrumentation wise, was it, you know, completed songs or was it just riffs and, or was it an um, amalgam of all of the above? I mean, that's a great question. I mean, it's one of the things I wish I could have asked Ed. I can tell you that in the studio and in the house, I remember cardboard boxes that were filled to the brim with cassettes. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't think that they were that complete. Certainly Ed would have maybe gone back to stuff, brought in Alex, you know, who just lived literally five minutes away from Ed. You know, I'll come over and, and play some drums. Ed would have played bass, but I think most of those ideas. Maybe he was playing to a uh, a drum machine. Okay. But uh, but I think most of that stuff was just kind of Ed noodling and ideas. There were thousands of cassettes. Yeah. You know, and and I always see to the, the library, the archive. I was never in there. Okay. You know, with all the with all the reel to reels and two inches and yeah. I mean, who knows? I mean, I guess a lot of that stuff Wolf found. Yeah. Uh, for the uh, different kind of truth record. Those songs that he found were probably pretty well done. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I wish I could have talked to him more about that stuff. Uh, Did, you know, Eddie's always, I mean, of course he wrote instrumentals, but he understood or knew and seemed to love writing songs with yeah. the context of having vocals. So everyone I know always said, you should do like a Satriani record. And he'd be like, no, man, I like playing with Alex. I, I, I am doing my own solo band. It's called Van Halen. You know what I mean? Certainly he liked vocals and we've heard about, did you ever talk to him about between Dave and Sammy, you know, I know it was pitched to him and maybe he came up with the idea of having an all-star band record with a bunch of all-star singers. Did you ever talk to him about maybe who some of his dream singers might be or anything about that? 
we had that conversation in, in a peripheral way. We were talking about, so there's a little bit in the book, and again, I don't want to give it away. Sure. Um, Ed, Ed started wanting to play cello. <laughs> and I thought, my God, can you imagine Ed playing cello? What he could do? Whoa. I had a buddy who was a really good cello player, also a great bass player. Anyway, I had my buddy come over to the house once, and Ed and my buddy could both drink. Anyway, they turned out a lot more drinking than playing. But um, <laughs> So I asked Ed uh, at an interview we had, I don't know, a few days later, perhaps, say so playing cello. And they said, yeah, man, I'm, I'm playing sax. And I said, oh, so you're going to, something about a solo guitar. And this is an interview in guitar world. He goes, yeah, it's going to be called guitar. What guitar? Um, <laughs> but, but he also talked about, there was talk about, yeah, doing a record. Pete Townsend, who he's spoken to a couple times. Mm -hmm. I thought that could have been an amazing collaboration. My God, Townsend and yeah. Ed. Oh, my God. But I guess it was like a little bit of a thing about what rhythm section were they going to use. Ed thought that Pete was going to come to 5150. Pete wanted Ed to come to England. So that, that never manifested. Phil Collins. Yeah, I heard Patty that. Smythe yeah. name came up. A couple others. Female vocalist. Patty Smythe, right? Patty Smythe. Yeah. There were a couple others. You know, and I mean that could have been interesting. Yeah. You know, different singers, but again, it it, it you know, it, it's just testimony that Ed yeah, loved vocal music. Yeah. You know? And obviously his brother, I th I think, you know, let's talk a little bit about his relationship with Alex. Like obviously being an immigrant family, his big brother. You bond closer because your language skills aren't that great it, with English. They grow up together in a poor upbringing. So there's not you have a bunch of resources to go do a bunch of stuff, even especially in Southern California, right? Talk about your your view on the two of them, not even so much musically, but mm -hmm. as brothers and as, as friends. What what did you see yeah. that stuck out the most to you? I mean, they they loved each other unequivocally. And back in the day, I mean, before I knew them, they were getting some pretty massive fights. Um, Alex told me a, a story. These are brother fights, right? They're not yeah. really hurting each other. Alex had a, a picture of cream up on his wall, and Ed wanted the poster. Ed said, <laughs> I'm going to take the poster now. Alex goes, no, you're not. I go, yeah. So I think Ed, or, or was reverse. Ed had the poster, and Alex wanted. Ed, I think, cut out a, like a little silhouette of, of Clapton, and they got into a big thing. <laughs> but, but you know, you talk about Alex being the older brother. Alex was absolutely... Ed protector big time yeah. you know not that he was ever menacing in your face but ju you just knew and i sent that you know because i would be over 5150 if i was there he'd be there a few times and i, I knew al pretty well i mean I, I again i think it was that thing that ed al sensed in me that i wasn't going to hurt ed and i don't mean physically i mean of course not. i wasn't going to lie or steal anything or write about him and so al welcomed me into the the fold as it were but yeah al was definitely his protector there and yeah you know again we talk about it musically that you know it was it was always those two guys there's a there's a pretty interesting little thing that happened i went on the road with van halen for two days sammy the sammy era 86 and i was up in ed's room this is after a concert they just sold out bill lewis arena in detroit. I, mean, I don't know that's detroit isn't it oh sorry maybe detroit yeah I'm yeah so, I mean, you know, people went crazy and there's a knock at the door. This is like four in the morning. So I'm up in Ed's room. Illegal things may have been going on. But, <laughs> it's um, rock and roll, baby. So there's a knock and I'm thinking, who the hell is going to knock on Ed's door at four in the morning? <laughs> anyway, it was Al and I'm not going to give away the rest of the story, okay. but it was an amazing moment. You know, hopefully it piques some interest because it was, it, it was astonishing to me. But yeah, I mean, they, 
they loved each other. They, like I said, Ed, you never, you never play with another drummer. He goes, no, never. Um, Makes sense. So, I think the, when Ed was like a a little Ed, I mean, maybe when he was jamming with seventh graders, you know, maybe yeah. a, another drummer would come. But yeah, yeah, yeah for yeah. the most part, to the point yeah. where it got. Al. Now, is Al a bit like I, I've never met him? Al seemed like a pretty big guy, at least tall wise. Was oh, he? he was. How big is he? Do you have oh, any idea was. how tall he is? Well, everybody's tall to me. <laughs> you know, I'm. <laughs> I'm five seven. If I'm oh. standing on a mountain, I bet. Is Eddie Al, short? How tall is Eddie? How much no, taller? Ed, Ed, Ed's like five eight, five nine. Okay. I mean, he's not real tall, but yeah. you know, Ed was always you know unbelievable shape. I mean, I mean, I mean, Ed could certainly take care of himself. I wouldn't have wanted to wrangle with Ed, you know, because he's always so ripped and tall yeah. in his fucking arms. But Al, I'd say Al was five ten, five eleven. Okay. You know, I mean, not not yeah. huge, but. You know, he's playing drums. I mean, he was the beefy guy. You wouldn't want to screw with Al. <laughs> and um, certainly not brothers, you know? right? Um, yeah. Yeah. And Al was Al was the yin to, to Ed's yang. Hmm. Al was, I don't want to say dark, but he was just a little more inner. I mean, Ed was inner too, but Al was kind of really inner. And, and, and like sure. he kind of knew him and turned out to be a very fun guy. And yeah. I'll just give away another little piece. I double dated Al and his girlfriend and my girlfriend and me. We double dated one night and it was <laughs> unreal. So you got to read that chapter too. All right. We were talking to Stephen Rosen about Eddie Van Halen, his life in times of them. We just sort of discussed the David Lee Roth era. And before we get into the Sammy era, I wanted to ask some questions about in that interim, in the space between, look, band breakups are brutal. They're, they're like marriages. There's a lot of personal hurt feelings involved. I know I was the one band I was in, Slam Circus. Uh, shout out to those guys if they're listening. Love those guys. I was crushed when we broke up. I was so bummed yeah. out. And I can't imagine having gone from young men, 17, 18, to now they're on the top of the world. They're 26, 27, arguably the biggest band in the world at the time breaks up. In between Dave and finding Sammy, you know, what was sort of his emotional mental state? You were friends with him. You, you were still talking to him. How, how must he have been feeling at the time? I write about that fairly extensively. Ed was an unhappy soul. With Ed, it was all about respect. And the way that Dave quit, look, I mean, the truth of that, you know, situation, Dave quitting, Dave being fired, you know, lies somewhere in the middle. You know, sure. Dave has his version, Ed has his version. But basically, yeah, Ed, basically Dave left the band at, at the height, height, height of a band's career. You know, you're working, you're working, you're working, you do backyard parties and you put out flyers on Sunset Boulevard and you get there, you're so upset, uh, unhappy that, that you just, you leave the band. You can't go off and do the EP and take some time off and come back. So with Ed, that, that was disrespect. Ed thought that everything that he had worked for and created with Dave, he thought that Dave, Dave just, just tossed it away like garbage. And Ed talks about that in the book. And Ed was fucking mad. He was mad, you know. He was hurt. He was fragile. I don't think he was ever... I mean, he never came out and said, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? I mean, I don't know if a guy like that said those things. Did he feel that? I don't know, man. I, I never sensed that. Okay. But, yeah, it was he was unhappy. So Dave actually did the EP, and he was still in the band, right? Okay. So I asked, you know, have you heard the EP? What do you think? He goes, yeah, man, I really like it. You know, he got the Carl Wilson to sing on California Girl, and I thought he did a good job, you know. Said, you know, in, in typical Van Halen fashion, I hope the fans embrace it. 
So Ed was all for it. You know, Dave, you want to go out and do your thing, man? That, you know, it has nothing to do with Van Halen. You know, you want to do your stick and do your covers. Be that guy. Great. And then when Dave left, I, I don't think Ed uh, was... Felt the uh, same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think he was saying uh, those same uh, niceties. And look, man, I, I, I can't blame him. I don't know. Look, I know band dynamics. You talk about what happened to you. I mean, in my little way, I was in a band and I was writing all the songs and they kicked me out because I didn't look right. right. And I knew it. Yeah. I didn't yeah. look, you know, but it's like, you fucking asshole, don't you get it, you know? <laughs> but I mean, hey, yeah, I mean, Aerosmith, my God, the yeah. Kings, I mean, the biggest bands in the freaking world, they're still fighting with each other 50 years later. So. <laughs> Look, man, Dave's a human being. He could do whatever he wants. I, I yeah. think it's just the way he did it, man. It's just like, you know, Monday he's in the band, Tuesday he's not. But yeah. Ed, it, Ed, Ed hurt. I mean, it, it hurt him a lot, you know. And, and we talked about, you know, the band that Dave put together, mm-hmm. you Great know. And, and Ed certainly knew who Steve Vai was, had sure. a lot of respect for him, was friends with Billy. Billy, yeah. Talis opened up for him. That's exactly right. Dave, Dave, Dave might have been a lot of things, but he wasn't a stupid guy. Yeah. And he put together a freaking good band. I was going to say, you know, the other thing is these bands start when they're kids. They don't have any business sense. And they, yeah. and most of them don't even have the emotional maturity to communicate and develop relationships that are healthy. <laughs> so yeah. it's no wonder that they kind of end up, then you add drugs, alcohol, fame, money, pussy, you know, fucks <laughs> yeah. up any man's mind. Yeah. My So my first live concert ever, and I never got to see Van Halen with Roth, was the Eat Him a Smile show. And wow. Great concert, phenomenal show. My second show was the 5150 tour. Wow. <laughs> Another two, and they're both in my top five all time concerts. <laughs> with that, we come to the end of episode one of our interview with Steve Rosen, the author of Tone Chaser, his amazing career long and almost lifelong relationship with Eddie Van Halen. Be sure to tune into episode two, which starts up with the Sammy Hagar era and goes beyond that up until Eddie's death. We'll see you on the next episode. You've been listening to Behind the Curtain, a What's Hot in the Strip Clubs podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Check us out on all major streaming platforms or at our website, www.whatshotitsc.com. Thanks for listening to What's Hot in the Strip Clubs with Danny Myers and Alon Fong, presented by Panda and Strip Joints Music. You can find us on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 